0: Hello. Last week, I went to the preview of a wonderful new BBC documentary on the composer Sir Michael Tippett, due to be broadcast in June. So I'm delighted this week to be able to talk to the man who made it, John Bridgert, who has some pungent criticism to make about the way the potential of classical music coverage on television is being largely ignored by the BBC. He also wrote the last corporation report on impartiality, and is the maker of many documentaries about the royal family and the BBC, so I'm looking forward to talking to him about the difficulties of covering both institutions. Well, since our last podcast, the BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, has finally resigned. Will this lead to a change in the way the next chair is selected? Apparently not, although Labour promises a review of the process, if it comes to power, aimed at making the chair more independent of government. Hmm... We shall see. There has been some movement in the dispute about cuts in BBC Local Radio. The corporation, of course, says it's simply a reallocation of resources. A strike, which should have been happening the day after the local elections this week, has now been postponed, whilst new proposals are being considered. These include making fewer redundancies and increasing the number of weekend breakfast shows. And in response to the crisis in Sudan, the BBC World Service has set up an emergency pop-up radio service for that war-torn country. It says it will bring live updates of the situation on the ground and inform listeners of life-saving resources. Well, now for this week's interview. I'm delighted to be joined by John Britcott, Britain's leading classical music documentary maker, who has also made documentaries covering how the BBC began and about the royal family. The subjects of his music documentaries include composers such as Elgar, Delius and Britton. And his most recent documentary is about Sir Michael Tippett, which I had the privilege of having a preview last week. That's set to air in June on BBC Two. John Bridgert, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It's about 40 years since I last worked with you on the desk at Nationwide, which is a bit shocking. Uh, That was a BBC One nightly programme for those who don't remember or are far too young to remember, shall I say. I had no idea, John, then that you had such a passion for music. And your subsequent career, when you became essentially the leading documentary maker of certain classical music programmes, was this always, always the thing you really wanted to do in broadcasting? Ultimately, make programmes about music. Not at that stage. I remember a
1: particular occasion on Newsnight, which was a few years later, when Peter Pears died, the the partner of Benjamin Britten, And I remember making a huge fuss. I wasn't editing the programme that day, and I think it was Mark Thompson who was, and I made a huge
0: fuss. (laughs) Future Director General of the BBC, yes.
1: Yes, and I made a huge fuss about, you must do something about Peter Pears, and this became a bit of a a sort of a rod for my back as people people beat me up for this. But they did do a a short item. and So that was something that was lurking there. And then... um, the first time I really had the opportunity to film some music, I was doing something for a series called People's Century, which um, Peter Pagnament had produced. And um, it was about the Second World War. And I was filming in St. Petersburg about the siege of Leningrad and the amazing performance of Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony in the middle of the siege. And I got St. Petersburg Philharmonic, who happened to be playing that piece at a concert very shortly afterwards. Uh, while I was there, I got them to to actually do a little extract for us in their hall, which was fantastic. And that, that the sort of bug was... Uh, I caught
0: it then. <laughs> well, I, I want to pursue this in some detail a little later, but you've done many other things as well, not least make some films about the the royal family. You made a film about Prince Charles at uh, 70, and I just wanted to ask you about that. When you're producing a film like that, who is the producer? Are you the producer? Because David Dimbleby talked to us earlier in, the, uh, in a, uh, another of our podcasts about this ambivalent attitude of the BBC. He doesn't quite know to celebrate or criticise or how to behave. So when you're dealing with the royal family and making a film like that, are you really in charge or are they in charge? Ah, <laughs> that's a leading question. Um, it's a delicate
1: relationship, let's put it like that. I mean, I I have a, a sort of rule, with, and it's not to do with the royal family, it's to do with anybody you're making a film with, which is that on the whole you need to get on You need to have establish a relationship of trust both ways. Otherwise, you're heading for disaster. I mean, it's different if you're making a film about somebody who's, uh, who's a villain. On the whole, I don't really enjoy making a film about somebody I don't like or rate because you're spending maybe six months on the project. And it's a bit sort of wearing... (laughs) <laughs> if you feel that, you know, that the company you're in is unpleasant. From that, I take it that, on the whole, you quite like Prince Charles. <laughs> well, yeah, I find him an interesting man. I'm afraid the BBC One documentary that went out on Sunday was a throwback to the 1950s, and I thought was was, well... Perhaps I shouldn't say it because it might sound like sour grapes. But let's say the Radio 4 one was much better. I think he's an interesting man. And the, so there's going, to be, there's going to be a lot of things that happen, I think, that are
0: maybe surprising to some people. And so when you when I asked you about whether you were the producer, um, oh. yes, uh, in the end, I'm ducking uh, yeah, up, I ducking right? you were. Uh, but David, you know, for example, told me that when we when when the royal family is covered, um, you know, outside broadcast cameras do it live. The BBC has the rights, and then the moment you talk about recording uh, or uh, the edited version of it, and it goes out. The Buckingham Palace retain the rights, and uh, that's there's been a big argument about that. But I think the larger point he's getting at is that it's very difficult for a, a national organisation like the BBC to report. Court, if you like critically and, and for example represents the minority of Republicans in this country and at the same time be expected to celebrate and be the organisation that puts on or covers these major occasions and between the two it's quite difficult uh, for the BBC to decide in which one it is at any particular time do you understand that dilemma?
1: I do, I, I mean I, I wrote a report for the BBC Trust on impartiality about uh, 15 years ago and I was very conscious while writing it and afterwards that this was the sort of elephant in the room that we were trying to ignore. It's a very difficult dilemma because, of course, you can give Republicans a voice from time to time and so on, but there is this belief that it is part of the national structure which you don't, you don't jeopardize as the national broadcaster. And how that
0: squares with impartiality, I think, is a very difficult issue. In a way, it's because also the BBC is regarded, like the royal family in a way, about one of the things that's supposed to hold us together. Yeah. And that's why, you know, are we, are we ho- trying to hold together? Are we criticising? Are we undermining? What are we doing? And all, in, in all this area, it's very confusing and people get very worked up about it.
1: I think that's true. And I... I think you've got to be inquiring. I mean, obviously, the, the Guardian has just run a series on the cost of monarchy. And um, the Guardian, which used to be a very republican paper, it's not. I think it's it publishes much more royal news now than it used to, and some of it quite, um, you know, supportive. I think the BBC should be inquiring about the royal family, and I think David Dimbleby's point about trying to assess whether monarchy is a good thing and what. You know, we've only recently, perhaps a lot of us, become aware of the things like the inheritance tax exemption and so on, which is a difficult area and I think probably will change in the long run. I mean, after all, they didn't pay income tax until 1992 when the Queen, in her Heribalis, decided it would be a good thing to do. These things evolve and I think the BBC has to be part of that discussion. But it, it's a dangerous thing if people feel that it's sort of jeopardising the, the monarchy's future because the, the monarchy broadly has public support.
0: Now, when you are talking about institutions, you also made these programmes about the BBC to commemorate 100 years and uh, full of ex- absolutely extraordinary interviews from the past. I don't know where you found them or whatever, but on reflection, what do you think about the BBC having delved so deeply into its past? What really struck me about those
1: first 50 years that I was dealing with was the speed at which decisions were taken, the enthusiasm and the the sheer get-up-and-go attitude that they had. And I, I mean, admittedly, t- I'm talking about radio first, but television later, it was a much simpler environment because there was, there was no competition for a large part of that period. And so there was no worry about audience figures. I mean, th- there was some worry in that they, they knew that they had to keep the licence payer on board. But they weren't worried about audience figures really until when ITV came along, suddenly everybody started watching ITV and the BBC shrank to about 25% of the audience. I mean, quite an incredible crisis. But the thing was, I think, that television began in, effectively after the war and a lot of people who had been in the services came into television at that point people like peter david attenborough john grist these people were used to taking initiative on their own bat you know we've got to build a bailey bridge across this river we do it you know we do it by tomorrow night sort of thing and this is the way that it happened with television they'd think up an idea and it was on the air in three weeks and now you know there is an immense process of discussion with far too many people usually looking for an excuse to say no. And it's very debilitating for creative decision-making.
0: Well, I'll come on to that, I hope, in a moment. But just before we leave the BBC, they, of course, called you in in a previous impartiality crisis. I think we're now talking about 2007. And you produced a a report on impartiality from them, which said, from seesaw to wagon wheel. (laughs) <laughs> Brilliant title for a very thorough and interesting report. But I I just wonder what you make of the present. The President worries an argument about impartiality because when I read your report and you go back, to, I mean, it seems to me it lays out the principles very clearly. The BBC should ensure that its reporting is impartial and unbiased and that all voices and perspectives are given equal consideration. The BBC should strive to be transparent in its reporting, making clear the source of its information and the reasoning behind its editorial decisions. The BBC should avoid the perception of bias by ensuring that its journalists and presenters are free from personal political or di- ideological biases and by providing a range of viewpoints in its reporting so if you were going to rewrite that today in the age of much greatly enhanced social media do you think the principles would have changed or just the difficulty of pl- it's a, more difficult to apply those principles i think it's the latter
1: i mean social media was really only just beginning when i wrote that report we were talking about presenters having online blogs, which is much less of an issue now compared with Twitter and, um, and Facebook and so on. And, and the way that people give instantaneous reactions to things, I think, I think it makes it very difficult. And I, my personal feeling is that you have to have some degree of tolerance about Twitter. It's a fact of life. People shoot their mouths off. And on the whole, it passes by in a flash. Nobody would have really bothered about Gary Lineker if there hadn't been such a fuss about it. I mean, maybe it made a headline in the Daily Mail for one day, but I think it would it would pass. He'd done it before, and um, it you know he he used ill chosen words, I think. But that's what happens on Twitter. You know, I mean, until we maybe we we should have more greater control of of trolling on Twitter and so on. And that this should take into account unwise words, but I don't know how you do that. And um, I think it's something we have to live with, and the BBC has to be grown up about this. I mean, I think there is a difference between someone like Gary Lineker and Hugh Edwards, say... All the same, in my report, I said that every part of the BBC should be subject to impartiality, even the weather forecasts <laughs> I managed to get in. Because, you know, I think traditionally in weather forecasting, there's always been a bias towards the south of England and also a bias towards cities rather than the country. This sort of thing, you have to have a degree of flexibility, maybe a degree of ambiguity in the way these things are handled. If you try to make very strict guidelines...
0: I think you end up in trouble. But I'm struck by the fr- by the word you use transparency. And you know which we've uh, well partly on this podcast well, what <laughs> we it's one of the things we're aiming at. Why is it that the BBC doesn't say look these are very difficult issues? We recognise the different points of view. We have taken this course of action, but we recognise the other views and have a continuing dialogue. Because in something like this, there is no, as you suggest, right, absolutely right answer. These are difficult issues. But the BBC still seems to want, and perhaps even more so with this particular administration, to take decisions, to implement them. And tell the public what they're going to get, instead of saying, as a public service broadcaster, "This is what we're trying to do." Now we do genuinely want to hear from you. Well, that's
1: a widespread failing at the moment. I mean, you've only got to look at the the crisis over the BBC orchestras and um, the BBC singers that the fact that they didn't, they weren't consulting, and in fact, the classical music strategy was written by two people in. In television, where there's very little classical music anyway, and there were people who didn't know anything about... Well, knew very little about classical music at all. And it would have been... The the crisis could have been avoided if there'd been a proper discussion with the trade unions, with people. We all know that that there's got to be... There have got to be savings, because that's the fact of life. There's a political decision about where you make those cuts. Do you give... You know, insist on the same percentage cut across the board, or do you decide politically that you need certain things need to be better financed, and others can should be cut back on so that's just an illustration of the way the bbc tends to avoid consultation with its consumers with its with its participants it that there's a sort of ivory tower mentality where everything happens in broadcasting house and and is parceled out in in sort of diktats i think it's i think it's a really dangerous
0: course I mean, it's got a, the BBC, I think, at the moment, is a very efficient organisation in business terms, but it's narrowed its management, which means that you wonder at the top whether there are people there who have a proper understanding of a whole raft of issues, uh, not including music. I mean, do you think that the people at the top of the BBC have an understanding of how important the BBC is in, in role role in, in classical music in the country? When I was in, briefly responsible for the Philharmonic in... Um, in manchester uh, in a a titular sense and i hadn't realized that the only live music people in certain parts of north england would hear would be if the bbc orchestra went there and i hadn't appreciated that the fact is not like it's almost like a a keystone isn't it in an arch you take away the keystone you've got a real problem with the rest of the building do you i mean do you think the bbc is still as important to classical music as it's ever been I think, yes, I think it is. I mean, I, I had a similar experience to you
1: in that when I was working recently with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and I started working with the management there, I had no idea the extent to which they were touring Scotland. They also go to Newcastle as well and, you know, they, they cross the border. And this is, I mean, it's not something the BBC Symphony Orchestra based in London does so much. But these or- the, the orchestras in different parts of the country get out and about and it's not just playing concerts they also do outreach in terms of education and so on and this i think is completely unsung and uh, you know it's it's not given publicity i raised it with the director general at one point recently and he said oh yes we're you know i realize that we're going to put uh, much more effort
0: into that but this was just before they then announced the (laughs) concert Yes. Well, let's move on to your your, your latest film uh, on Sir Ma- uh, Michael Tibbet, an almost two-hour programme which is going to go on, we hope, BBC Two in June. haven't got a particular date. It, it, it comes on the back of astonishing programmes, and I mean astonishing programmes on Benjamin Britten, on uh, Schubert's Winter Journey, on a whole range of other composers... And the thing that strikes me about this, if, if, to start, John, is that um, this is not you being given a commission on going and g- going and getting it. It's you deciding to go and do it, and over maybe a decade, somehow persuading people to both take part and then to pay you. I mean, for example, when I watched Tippett, there was uh, Sir Colin Davis, the late Sir Colin Davis, I think he's been dead for, what, 10 years, talking about Tippett in what I assume was an original interview, was it? Yes, it was, exactly, so, you shot this interview 10 years ago, and it's taken that time to get. When did you actually start on the Tippet? I first suggested this
1: in an email in 2011, and um, I'd wanted Channel 4 or the BBC to do it at the time the Tippet died in 1998, but um, that never got anywhere. And in 2011, I spoke to the BBC then and they said, well, maybe do an interview with Colin Davis because we knew that he was fading rather at that point and, you know, he died within a year or so of that. And so we did that and then I tried moving it on and it sort of laid dormant for a long time until about um, three or four years ago, I think, it it resurrected. Uh, You have to be patient sometimes. The BBC, the history of the BBC, how the BBC began... That also, I had a rather productive year in 2011, because I suggested it then, and it it was put into development, shooting development in 2014. But basically, people in television could not conceive of a series for 2022 in 2011.
0: They just thought, this is madness. Even though crucial people... Crucial to the development of the BBC would clearly not be around in 2022. So you better do them now. Well, that was that was my push. You know,
1: I said you really got to do them. And a a lot of these people knew that they weren't going to be around when the programme was broadcast. And Colin Davis, actually, I did shortly after that. I did a long interview with him about his life. And at the end of it, somebody else who was there, a friend of his, said, "Um, "What's this programme for?" And I hadn't got a commission. And uh, I looked obviously slightly uncomfortable. And Colin Davies said, they want it for when I'm dead. <laughs> and, you, and when somebody says that, you don't quite know what to say. <laughs> but you do have to try and, and think ahead. But you're battling against a system that is really only looking ahead 18 months at the most.
0: So this is you deciding, this is so important. Tibbet is an important, uh, you've done this magnificent programs on Benjamin Britten, you've written the Astonishing biography of him and so on, and you've decided it's important, but you're actually not representing anybody but yourself at this moment, <laughs> are you? I mean, when you look at the choices of where you can go to get money, uh, is there anything at the BBC? There is now Sky Arts, and I heard a scandalous tale of a senior BBC figure saying, "Well, if you want the arts, go to Sky Arts," and Sky Arts do some original programming. They do, but the sort they do, and but some of the things you're doing, is there anywhere else but the BBC? Do you just have to say? Right, I'm going to have to wait till the next administration, as it were, in the arts area, and I'm going to, next to controller, and the next or whatever, I'm just going to keep going and going and going. And meanwhile, presumably earning nothing and funding some of this out, I mean, you get odd little bits of development money, but basically you are spending your money without any guarantee that it'll make the program we'll make the screen.
1: Well, there's an element of that, but luckily I don't only make... Music programs, so uh, because I think you can't make a living out of making music programs on their own, as you rightly say, they they involve many more weeks of work than actually you're paid for, just in in sort of researching and um, cajoling people and so on. But I would say that I mean Sky Arts certainly. It made a huge leap forward in the pandemic when it put, its, put made Sky Arts free, free to view. And that has transformed the picture for them. People are much more aware of Sky Arts. And a lot of people do very good work for them. And they even do take on things that you might think are not mainstream. So I really admire them. I, I would work for them if it wasn't for the fact that I'm sort of nearing the end of my career. And it's, it's a bit late to start
0: finding new sponsors, as it were. But what you need at a head of an orchestra, if you don't have a channel dedicated to the arts, you need somebody within a large organization in the BBC who is themselves dedicated to arts, who understands music and has a passion for it. Yes And I don't see it. you know, going to the past when we first worked together. I mean, there were problems with the BBC. there were a succession of baronies, and it was difficult often to get decisions, if you like, made across the organization. But what you did have. Is people in charge of individual areas who were absolutely passionate, who would barge into the DG's office and say, why have we just done a series on the arts? We need another one about science in the same way. You know, why don't we do this? And then somebody back from arts would say, how can you not do this? And there was a real battle of people who knew what they were talking about. I don't see that at all now. I don't see a leader in the BBC totally committed to music.
1: No. But I mean, when you think David Attenborough, who, after all, is famous... For the program's wonderful series he's made he is a great patron of classical music and one of the things he did when he was the number two controller of bbc2 in the mid-60s i mean he he commissioned benjamin Britten to write an opera for bbc2 for television you know which was virtually unknown idea he's always been a great supporter of music on television paul fox who was a great sports editor, producer and editor, obviously Panorama became controller of BBC One and director of television. He said to me, he said, there are three things the BBC, the essential things for the BBC. And he said, the first is the proms, the second is the news, and the third is the natural history unit. And I thought that was really interesting, the fact that he put the proms first. And... I mean, people give lip service to these things. They give lip service to the proms because it's quite high profile. But there is this terrible feeling that classical music is a sort of niche thing for some odd nerds who want to watch this or listen to it. And we really have to do the minimum just to keep them happy. But the trouble is that if you do the minimum, the people stop looking out for things because they never find it. And so on television particularly, this is true. There's no real policy for it. The idea that, te- that classical music on television should be for a general audience. It's not for a specialist audience. You have to do it in a way that doesn't offend the specialist. You're not dumbing down. But you've got to make it just like a science program or a history program or an art program. You make it for a general audience. That's, I think, the key thing, which you know, the present management doesn't understand. They see it as a sort of protected species which they're not sure is worth protecting.
0: And yet, when you look around the country, look at the number of choirs, you look at the commitment of those individuals and the joy that's produced by this collective exercise. In your film on Tippett, as I say, the the, the, the photography of the choir that's singing there is just, I mean, I was in tears doing it because they were transported and they, in the process, with our child in our time, transported us as well. Um, I just just want to go back a little bit to the film itself because I don't want to... The suggestion is that... um, Or people might think that you can't ask very direct and quite critical questions about the individuals involved. And I'm struck when you're dealing with Tippett, for example. um, You don't hide from the fact that he was absolutely ruthless in many ways in his private life in the sense that, of course, he genuinely loved people, but they were sidelined where music was concerned and and that was the prime thing. And, And people were remarkably honest with you about that John you had some very revelatory interviews I suppose it goes back to trust doesn't it I would have thought they would have deflected some of those very direct questions you asked and they didn't they all answered it so people were open about his private life I mean it wasn't scandalous but but there was that element of ruthlessness well they were open about the fact that his librettos which he insisted on writing himself were often rather less of less quality shall we say there was all of this together with this sublime music how did you get people to be so honest
1: well i don't know i mean i just i just ask them direct questions and hope i mean i i think it is a question of trust i think that's that's one thing but also i think they know intuitively that if you're doing a program about anybody an artist or a, uh, some sort of personality it could be political um, if, if you make out that they're absolutely wonderful and perfect and can't be criticized you don't have any credibility. You know, with Tippett, you've got to face the fact that some of the music is quite difficult. And there are reasons why it's so hard to play because he wrote it rather badly, technically. And so musicians have to spend a lot of time working out how to play the music that he's written. And it's better to be honest about that. But what people were saying was, well, yes, it's all all (laughs) been done rather cack-handedly but but it's beautiful in the end you know it's worth it although there's one the fourth string quartet which is a particularly difficult piece the viola player in the lindsay string quartet is quite honest when i asked him do you actually like it and there's a sort of five second silence while he thinks how is he going to respond and i thought that was that was really and he you know he he was equivocal in his answer let's put it like that (laughs)
0: Now, one of the remarkable things about uh, your Tippett film is how much music there is in it. I mean, obviously, you, you know, the old problem is if you're making programmes about the arts, whatever, you have a commentary and then a clip and then a commentary and a clip and so on. But you made absolutely... You, you knew you had to give really significant uh, part of the time this documentary to the music. Or oh, what, about 36 minutes or something like yeah. that, I think? that, uh, and And you did it with a specific Scottish orchestra... And I looked at that from two points of view as a profe- ex-professional. One is the sheer cost of getting the orchestra in there. And uh, then also the numbers of cameras and technically how you would do it. And, and you had to cope with a, a situation where I think with your communication with your cameras, our camera team broke down. So nobody was able to count them through. <laughs> uh, how on earth did they cope? Um, with great uh, resilience
1: and, <laughs> and imagination. I mean... <laughs> It was a nightmare. And I, I sat there thinking, where should I be? If I, and I sort of rushed into the hall. To, but, of course, you, you know, the music's playing. You can't shout at people,
0: <laughs> you, know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, pan round to the, to the soloist or whatever. Because just to, for the audience who doesn't understand this, if you're doing a piece of music in that way, whether with, with OB cameras or film cameras or whatever, you have to have somebody counting the beat through it.
1: Well, there are different ways of doing it. If you're doing a prom concert or a whole concert, it's heavily scripted so that everything is completely scripted and people know what they're supposed to do at any particular point. But they have a bar count because they can't be actually following the score, partly because, A, the cameraman might not be a score reader anyway, and B, because it's too much to look at. Um, You know, They've got to be focusing on what they can see in the viewfinder. But the way we do it they do have some sort of script so that they have some particular things that I want them to get. A particular. So bar 57, I want you to get the clarinet or whatever it is. But I don't script the whole thing because I want them to have the latitude to see things and, and seize the moment. When they see something that's going to work, to let them have the initiative –
0: and when they see the face of a particular person in the in the choir, that's going, who well, is transfigured? I mean, I can't even know the word to use it by yeah. you what's happening. Then they know. Just stay there a while. Absolutely, I always say to them, I don't
1: want a hundred percent cover. Don't worry about that. It's a documentary because there'll be other things that are happening, people speaking, and so on. And I'm only using extracts. I want eighty percent, and. It can be slightly chaotic at the beginning. I mean, I I did a film about Benjamin Britten about 10 years ago, and we were the BBC Concert Orchestra, and we'd been going about half an hour, and my cameraman changed position, and he walked past the back desk of the first violins, and he heard one violinist say to the other, this is absolute chaos, isn't it? um, But it always is. And other people who, who direct classical music tell me they find the same. The first... 45 minutes are pretty scary because the thing is there's no rehearsal you the orchestra arrives about 3 minutes before you're due to start if you're lucky so you know you've only got time to imagine shots you can't actually rehearse the shots and you've got expensive time you know so you can't waste time and it's always a bit of a a mess up at the beginning and then everything everybody gets the rhythm and everybody settles down but you mentioned about the cost of the orchestra in this case for some strange historic reason, the BBC orchestra, I didn't have to pay for it, came out of their allocation for Radio 3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is part of the sort of crazy attitude to classical music on television. They think it belongs to Radio 3.
0: I mean, it's very convenient for me in that they... Yeah, but, but just to, just on this, it's very obvious, way, but I think you made the point again when you made a short speech at the preview that actually the BBC doesn't use it. So yeah. We're all put off. I would have thought, looking at that, the costs are horrendous. How can you make a programme? You just explain where the fun, money came from. But actually, you think that the BBC orchestras there are a major asset which are not being fully used because producers don't understand that they are almost available to them.
1: Yes, it's exactly. And, and, you
0: know, the people who commission
1: programmes know this. They don't suggest it. You know, the BB- I don't know when the BBC singers were last on television, apart from the proms. And the people put all their eggs in the in the prom's basket. This is the trouble. They don't realize these orchestras are a resource and a wonderful resource. I think it was true to say that 40 or 50 years ago, the BBC orchestra is a bit ho-hum. Now they're really top class and it's a terrible waste that they don't appear on television. You could use them and you don't have to be just doing concerts. I'm rather against doing concerts on television. I think music needs to be invented for television, not just put a camera on
0: a concert platform. Sorry, John. I wish we could talk forever, but um, one final question I have to put to you, which is: You said earlier you're coming towards the end of your career. I hope that's not true, but if it's true, have you got a, somebody else, another composer in your sights? I think I'm getting I'm closer than than you might think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, the thing is, people come up to me and say, "Oh, you must do a program about." Gerald Finzi or Rutland Boughton. And I think you don't realize the battle there is to get people who are actually household names on the screen. I mean, I'd love to do Richard Strauss. There's not much appetite for programs about composers. I don't think there's anything in production with anybody else at the moment on a composer. I mean, it's this had the advantage of being commissioned four years ago, so it's part of a previous regime. And I think... There's a worry that somehow uh, composers, they think of it as biography. My belief is, with an artist, biography, yes, is interesting, but it's only interesting because of the art. It's not interesting in its own right. Tippett's private life is of no interest at all, except for the fact that it impinges on the music. So there are lots of other people I would love to make films about, but I'm not sure that I'm going to let myself...
0: (laughs) Well, uh, John Bradley, please don't give up. I don't see any successor in sight. And thank you very much in talking to me. It's been a real pleasure, Roger. Thank you. And that's it for this week. A few more suggestions on our rebrand have been Media Matters with Roger Bolton or Roger Bolton's Media Matters. Oh, very good thoughts. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who've signed up to support our podcast. Please do if you haven't already. It's less than £2 per month. And you also receive bonus material in the form of my musings on the week's interview. Mind you, whether you think that's a bonus or not, it's up to you. Uh, Well, you can sign up easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. While you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next time. Goodbye.